Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and welcome to the History of England, Episode 8. Reconstruction and Defence. I am pretty sure that as Alfred watched the defeated Viking horde lumbering off to East Anglia in 878, he'd have had mixed feelings. Okay, glad to see the back of them, but on the other hand, pretty confident that sooner or later they'd be back. This time, Unlike their departure in 871, Alfred was going to make darn sure that their next visit was a good deal less comfortable. Broadly speaking, and with 2020 hindsight, the next 14 years or so are about reconstruction. But not just reconstruction, reform. In his work over these years, Alfred established a template that his successors would build on. And it's worth noting that these are carried out against a background of renewed Viking attack, which makes their achievement even more impressive. It's over these years that Alfred really earns his title of great. As he put it, in a place of military, cultural and economic revolution that would strengthen his country when the Vikings came back for another bite. But also form the basis of the success of the people who followed him. And for good measure, he would take steps to secure his historical reputation through some fancy bits of propaganda, though probably a bit harsh to think of it in that way. Let's start with the cultural stuff first, since I think this is probably closest to Alfred's heart. And we can let Alfred speak for himself on the problem he felt he had to solve. In the preface he wrote to Pope Gregory's bestseller, Pastoral Care, which does sound like a humdinger, he wrote... Learning had declined so thoroughly. Who could understand their divine services in Latin? Or translate a single letter from Latin into English? I recollected how before everything was ransacked and burned, the churches throughout England stood filled with treasures and books. This upset Alfred very much, and I guess we should ask why, and why he felt this to be so important. Not to overcomplicate things, I think that Alfred quite simply loved learning and felt that a life without reflection was worth less. He felt that a man would get closer to God through learning and would be happier. That's what comes across from his writing. One of the anecdotes that Asser writes of Alfred is in his youth with his brothers, set a challenge by their mother to be able to read a particular text and the one who succeeded first would be given the text and, of course, Alfred won. It would be a pretty poor anecdote, of course, if, say, Athelbald had won. That wouldn't do at all. Actually, for me, this might demonstrate, as Asser intended, Alfred's intelligence and love of learning. But it also demonstrates his competitiveness. Alfred would not have been the man he was if he hadn't been driven as well as intelligent. 
But as well as the personal benefits of learning, Alfred felt that the glory and reputation of his country had been diminished. That previously other nations had come to England for learning, and that had added to its lustre and its glory. And it was time that this was restored. And finally, there were much more practical reasons. As Alfred again wrote, in the case of the king, the resources and tools with which to rule are that he have his land fully manned. He must have praying men, fighting men, and working men. And he wrote, "No man may bring to bear any skill without wisdom." Alfred knew that his rule would be more effective if implemented through and with the support of the written word. In this, he reflected the continental kings of the ninth century, such as Charlemagne and Charles the Bald. Doesn't detract from Alfred's genius one bit to recognise that he drew inspiration from examples around him, as well as the wisdom of the ancients and his own creativity. So he wanted his people to learn because he wanted clerks to be able to give written orders, to keep records, and all that. He knew that he could communicate more effectively with his thanes and they with him if they could also read and write. And back to that previous point that his thanes and churchmen would rule more effectively if they could deploy the wisdom of the ancients as accessible through texts and texts that he himself translated. There may also be one further point that Alfred was on a propaganda campaign, and that much of what he commissioned and started was to glorify the West Saxon state and heritage. He very probably had some hand in starting the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which has been our constant companion for the last few weeks and months and years. In fact, there are strenuous efforts to reconstruct a royal family tree that proves direct descent from Cherdich, and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, for example, completely fails to give Mercian kings like Offa the credit and title of Bretwalder. They happily give Egbert of Wessex. I figure, in a sense, that this is true. That Alfred did want to make sure that the West Saxon achievements were recognised and remembered above all others, and he wanted that to be owned by all his people, not just the learned. And for that reason, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and all his own works were written in Anglo-Saxon, in Old English. This sounds like a simple thing, but actually, it's massive. Latin was the language of learning, not English. English was so rarely written down that Alfred really was trailblazing. But rightly or wrongly, what comes across to me was that Alfred was genuinely motivated to improve the lot of his people, genuinely felt their lives would be better for learning and for understanding the Word of God through a learned church. So, what did he actually do? Well, he started by trying to assemble a dream team of scholars and churchmen from wherever he could find them. He brought in scholars from Mercia, Wales, Francia, Old Saxony. He established a school at his court, so that his aldermen's children could learn and therefore prepare themselves for office. But probably most impressively, as I've alluded to more than once now, he taught himself Latin, and then he translated works himself from Latin into English. And ever practical, he worked out a system of distributing the most important texts throughout his country. So that everyone would have access to texts within their own language, Alfred made extraordinary demands, particularly on his secular leaders, thanes and aldermen. The writings from his court stress that the need to pursue wisdom and learning was not just for clergy or monks; everyone in a position of authority needed to seek knowledge. Alfred would have agreed with Alcuin: the Vikings were a scourge of God. 
God had withdrawn his favour and protection from the Anglo-Saxon people, a military success would never be enough. Divine favour needed to be regained to achieve permanent success, and to achieve that, the Anglo-Saxons needed to work hard. These demands were therefore not just pious hopes or a determined effort to persuade. Alfred threatened to remove from office those of his nobles who, quote, neglected the study and application of wisdom. There are few more extraordinary demonstrations of his leadership than that almost all of his aldermen and thanes, in Asser's words, who were illiterate from childhood, applied themselves in an amazing way to learn how to read, preferring rather to learn this unfamiliar discipline, no matter how laboriously, than to relinquish their offices of power. There is another theme there that we should pick up on. Alfred expected a lot from himself, but he expected a lot from his people as well. He accused them of laziness and indolence in pursuing wisdom and promoting education. He expected them to put this right and expected them to give more in many other ways as well. And in this, the continuing Viking threat surely helped him. The alternatives to the way of Alfred were deeply unattractive. And the examples of Northumbria, East Anglia and Mercia stood as helpfully real reminders of just how unattractive this way was for the Anglo-Saxons. Last, but by no means least, is the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. We don't know exactly who commissioned the Chronicle, but it is at least likely that Alfred had a hand in it, and it seems to have started around this time. The Chronicle is at one level the history of the Anglo-Saxon peoples, and by this level by itself, it is an impressive cultural achievement, which was to survive and continue even all the way through the Norman Conquest and beyond. But at another level, it's a superb piece of propaganda, promoting and glorifying the role of the West Saxons in England's story. A good example is the complete omission of three Mercian kings who would most certainly have merited the title of Bretwalder, and then proclaiming Egbert as the eighth Bretwalder. So, the Chronicle is a superb cultural achievement, fine, and it is an extraordinary window on an otherwise dark ages, but unbiased, it ain't. Alfred's determination to rule through the written word reflected itself also in his law code. Alfred's law code, in many ways, is not his most impressive piece of work. It's a bit of a legal mess, apparently, in that it simply appends the laws of Ina of Wessex and Ethelbert of Kent. But then never makes clear whether these law codes are still applicable, even when they clearly conflict with his own code. He's rather wimpy about the whole thing, saying that he's basically not inventing any new laws, because he's not sure how his successors will receive them. There really seem to be two reasons why the laws have an important place in his reign. Sorry, we seem to be into lists today. But, number one, Alfred very consciously saw his role as king in the light of a biblical lawgiver, and related his law codes very consciously to Moses. Ina's laws were divided into 120 chapters, the reputed age of Moses on his death, and the number of people on whom the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost. Lawgiving was an expression of his view of religious kingship. Number two relates to a slightly complicated debate about the start of the concept of England and Englishness, which is worth spending just a little bit of time on. Most of the time, Alfred refers to himself with no grander language than King of the West Saxons. In fact, he does this in his laws. But it is very likely that Alfred had a grander vision, a vision of a combined Anglo-Saxon state of England and the English. 
The implication of his inclusion of Ena's and Ethelbert's laws and his reference to the mysterious laws of offer that no one else remembers is that this is a law code for all the English, not just Wessex. To continue that theme, there are some charters where Alfred refers to himself as the King of the Anglo-Saxons, which is a short hop, skip and a jump away from King of all the English. Anyway, we'll come back and discuss a little bit more later. All of these policies were very important, no doubt, but none of them would have mattered unless Wessex survived. Alfred had learnt the lessons of 878, he knew that the Vikings would be back, and that this time he needed to be ready for them. The scale of the Viking victories and the need for even Alfred to pay their armies off to survive could have indicated a deep lack of confidence on the West Saxons' part. But what Alfred saw clearly was that Viking victories were not the result of any inherent weakness in the Anglo-Saxons, nor any military superiority of the Vikings, but simply due to the tactics and strategies the Vikings employed. They relied on mobility, making raids, plundering, spreading terror, moving on before they could be engaged, whereas the Anglo-Saxon state had evolved forces set up to defend a territory, a land, and therefore set up for pitched battles. As we've said, often by the time the Anglo-Saxon army was ready, the Vikings had vanished. In contrast to the disasters of 866 to the 870s, one of the striking things about the English forces that met the renewed invasion in 892 was their mobility. Alfred achieved this by reforming the way that the third worked. One of the weaknesses of the third was its inflexibility, because it was composed of churls who needed to tend their farms to survive, and the third from each shire was not prepared to move far away from its home shire, nor could it afford to stay away for too long, or at key times of year. The result would be famine. Alfred solved that problem by calling up half of the third in any shire at any one time and allowing the other half to stay and tend the fields, and then rotate them out at intervals. With this simple approach, it meant he was able to keep the third in the field for much longer and support much more complex or military operations than ever before. Alfred's other key strategy was to restrict the freedom of movement of the Danes, who in 871 and 8 had been able to roam the countryside at will. Alfred knew that the Danes were not expert in reducing towns and relied on starving the inhabitants into submission, which gave him valuable time. So... Alfred developed a system of fortified towns called burrs, which we might describe as a defence-in-depth system. Some of these towns were developed, fortified and garrisoned by the enormous figure for the time of 27,000 men. It meant that no village in southern England was any more than 20 miles or a day's ride away from a fortified centre. There's a map on the website showing their distribution. So the next time the horde arrived, villagers could flee to a place of safety and wait for the Anglo-Saxon army to arrive. Or, if small bands of Danes were ransacking the countryside, the response could be much quicker and much more local from that garrison. The system was revolutionary in Anglo-Saxon England, amongst a race that had traditionally not liked towns and for whom fortifications were generally alien. It demanded a massive dedication of resources and organisation to make work. We know how this worked from the existence of a document called the Burgle Hydage. This defined exactly how many men would be needed to man the walls of each burr, 
and made sure the surrounding population had the resources they needed to support and maintain the burr. Again, there's a copy of this on the website. Here again, Alfred made enormous demands on his people. Asa wrote of Alfred's need to cajole and criticise and threaten to get his subjects to carry out his commands. And despite the extraordinary nature of what they achieved, he complained of the work that had not yet been completed or was late. So, as I say, Alfred's military reforms made great demands of his people. However, it's worth noting that just as his use of language drew on the Carolingian experience, the same is true of this building of local responsibility to maintain infrastructure. And in this, Alfred may well have drawn on offer who had also embedded the responsibility for ecclesiastical and secular lords to maintain bridges, roads and fortifications. Either way, the system was to be tested in the coming war, and as we see, it pretty much worked. Each of these birds then had a defensive wall or a stockade, it had a mint, and it had a marketplace. Some of these birds were old settlements re-fortified, amazing as it might seem, Old Roman walls were still being used all these centuries later. Others were new forts set up in new or existing locations. An example of the latter was Oxford. At the time, Oxford was of no special importance in Alfred's reign. But by the year 1000, it had become an important centre, and this was very likely because the Burrs had another benefit. They inevitably became a centre for trade and generally help the development of trade throughout Wessex. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. As Alfred's successors moved on to the offensive and into Danish conquered lands to recover those lands that had been lost to the Vikings, they carried that idea of the Burrs with them and extended the military network. It's interesting to reflect that this was very much the same strategy of conquest as the Normans would inflict on us a couple of hundred years later. At the same time, though, Alfred's Burrs would extend the economic as well as military network. Warwick, Stafford, Buckingham, Oxford, most of the county towns of modern England originated in the 9th and 10th centuries. The Burgle system and military demands also impacted on taxation and administration. Some tradition has built up that Alfred invented the shire system, but this isn't so. But Alfred did develop the system ensuring that his aldermen were clear about their role, the personal qualities they needed to show, and their need for education. The use of the shires and their aldermen in defending the kingdom against the Dane embedded the system of shires within the structure of Anglo-Saxon administration from where it would continue to develop. Somewhere around 875, 
Alfred also initiated a reform of the West Saxon coinage, with what is called the cross and lozenge type of coin. This reform restored the weight and quality of the coinage. So, quite apart from the support to economic growth this gave, these new coins were interestingly produced in London, traditionally a Mercian town, as well as the more traditional mints in Wessex. What this shows is that at some point after the expulsion of Burgred, Alfred had begun to extend West Saxon influence into Old Mercia. There are also a couple of very interesting survivals of a coin showing both himself and King Chulwulf of Mercia. You'll remember that Chulwulf had been put on the Mercian throne as a puppet by the Danes and was described by Asa as a unwise king's thane or foolish king's thane. And when Guthrum had returned, defeated by Alfred, he'd cashed in his chips and taken half of Mercia for himself and his followers. So the rather biased Wessex-oriented record has probably been very unkind to Chelworth in the way they depict him as a sort of cat's paw. But he is, in fact, probably descended from King Chelworth I of Mercia. He probably had a perfectly reasonable claim, and he wasn't therefore simply a thane. In addition, he wasn't idle. He appeared to have fought the Welsh in 878, for example, and 881. He issued his own coinage, closely modelled on Alfred's, which suggests the two kings actively cooperated. Indeed, there is then this coin showing both Churlwolf and Alfred together. There has been only one survival, but the veracity of the coin seems to be improved by the discovery very recently of a second in the Chilterns. On these coins, Alfred is shown as the senior partner. Chilwulf is simply styled as a king, whereas Alfred is styled as Rex Anglorum, king of the English. It seems to confirm that Chilwulf had a real role, if subordinate to Alfred, that he was actively participating and cooperating with Alfred. And it also, therefore, provides more evidence that Alfred was indeed taking leadership for all the free Anglo-Saxons. Somewhere around the 880s, Churlwolf, the last king of Mercia, disappears. He's certainly gone by 883. It's quite possible that he died in 881, fighting the Welsh, since we know that the Mercians suffer a defeat against them at that time. Churlwolf is replaced by a man called Athelred, who was to be a close associate of Alfred throughout the rest of his life. Sadly, we know nothing of Athelred's background and ancestry, despite a stream of wild speculation, but the assumption is that he was at least a Mercian. The key thing is, though, that Athelred is described as an alderman, not as a king. He's lord of the Mercians, not the king of the Mercians, and the implication is very clear. Mercia is now subject to Wessex. Alfred is careful not to offend Mercian sensibilities as far as possible, and he's very careful to show that Mercia is still very much a separate entity. So, Athelred leads the Mercian Witem, for example, and the Mercian armies. But its subservience to Wessex is no less clear. Alfred and Athelred clearly had a productive relationship, and the strength of the relationship was cemented by the marriage in the late 1880s between Athelred and Athelflad, Alfred's eldest child and daughter. Athelflad was, of course, the daughter of Elswith, who herself was a good Mercian, daughter of one of the Mercian tribes of the Ghani. This was important. Athelflad could be presented as part of the Mercian heritage and descent rather than simply a West Saxon import. 
But now, while the Viking tide rose about them and half of Mercia appeared lost to Guthrum, the Mercian nobility were probably reasonably resigned to this West Saxon takeover. But it can't have been easy. If and when the threat receded, local pride could easily reassert itself. The great heathen army had departed for the Low Countries in November 879. Their return was both expected or feared by Alfred. But in 884, a detachment appeared back in Kent and attacked the half-built burr at Rochester. Half-built or not, it was enough for the local inhabitants to hold out until Alfred arrived to relieve it, and a part of the army immediately took off again back to the continent. The other part did that normal Viking trick of making loads of promises, handing over hostages, and then going raiding anyway, ignoring the promises and leaving the hostages to their fate. History does not record what Alfred did with those hostages. We don't know a lot about the campaigns of 884, except that the raiders were not caught, and that they are supported by Danes from East Anglia before they leave. And so in response, Alfred launched an attack on the Danes by sea. A fleet was therefore sent in 884 to carry out a reprisal attack against the East Anglian Danes to punish them for their support of the continental raid. It met with partial success, defeating the Danes and capturing 16 Danish ships. Sadly, it was then itself caught by a separate force of returning Danish ships and itself worked over pretty thoroughly before limping back to port. But at very least, Alfred had made a point. Some time later, of course, many centuries later, Alfred then gets credit for establishing the English Royal Navy. Clearly, this is an anachronism. The idea of an established national navy has many, many centuries to wait. But there is some, a small kernel of justice in it. Here were boats commissioned at least at royal command. The idea would resurface under Edgar and Richard I until we get to the early modern period. The raid of 884 had consequences. It showed Alfred, if he needed any further confirmation, that Danish East Anglia was a threat to him, that he needed to do something to counter. And so in 886, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records. The same year, also, King Alfred fortified the city of London, and the whole English nation turned to him, except that part of it which was held captive by the Danes. He then committed the city to the care of Alderman Athelred to hold it under him. Now, this is a very interesting entry, not just because it records the retaking of London. We have the line that the city was committed to the care of Alderman Athelred to hold under Alfred. Remember that London is traditionally a Mercian town, not a West Saxon one. And so Wessex dominance is further confirmed. Or, so the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle proclaims. There is then the line, the whole English nation turned to him. As Alfred's reign went on, his court clearly experimented a bit with the kind of claims it made for Alfred, because he never asserted the idea of a single English kingdom consistently, possibly because the prospect of that happening was more than a little remote. But there's no doubt it was part of Alfred's vision. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle began to talk of the Anglecoon, the English people. Just to pursue this point a little further... We should note that the Treaty of Wedmore we discussed last time was made between Guthrum and Alfred with, quote, all the councillors of the English people. 
Alfred again was being seen not as a representative of Wessex and the West Saxons, but of the whole English nation. So why is this different from Egbert and Offa? Well, simply because they both saw their success as being the leading nation amongst all the different Anglo-Saxon nations. Their preeminence was dependent on their military success. Alfred's new status was based on a vision of one united nation of the English, united in the face of the common enemy of the Norsemen. True enough, this vision was one of an English nation in the mould of Wessex and led by the West Saxons, as evidenced by the bias of the Anglo-Saxon chronicle towards Wessex. But still, one nation, one people. On one other occasion, he went even further, describing himself as, quote, ruler of all the Christians of the island of Britain. Now that is quite a claim, and actually it isn't repeated. But you can see Alfred's religious passion embedded within it. Either way, Alfred almost refounded London. The Anglo-Saxon part of London was, of course, not the old Roman city, but the area around modern Aldwych and along the Strand. The early Anglo-Saxon settlers, used to a rural life and suspicious of urban centres, had distrusted that old city and abandoned it. Alfred now recolonised the old Roman city, refortified the walls and established a fresh garrison there. From then on, London Burr was a central part of the English realm and of its trade. Meanwhile, what of the Danish parts of England at this time? Here we are right back into the good old Dark Ages and have almost nothing to go on. The one certainty is that there is a Danish king in York called Guthrith, who died in York in 895. Significantly, Guthrith was a Christian. He was then succeeded by two kings, Seafred and Knut, but we know almost nothing of either of them. However, what we do know is that whatever their religion, it was to become very clear that they continued to feel a strong sense of community with other Danes and Vikings, wherever they might be. Guthrum himself in East Anglia was apparently still a Christian king, Athelstan. He minted coins with his Christian name, so there appears to be no need to doubt that. It is much more doubtful, though, that he imposed the religion on his followers. He appeared to live in peace for the remaining 11 years of his reign and died in 890. Despite Guthrum's peace, the Anglo-Saxon cultural revival, the stirrings of an English national identity, the military preparation, these were all soon to be tested by a fresh onslaught from a Danish army. We'll hear next time how the experience of the 892 to 896 invasions will show how far Wessex had come in dealing with the Viking threat. So thank you everyone for listening so carefully and attentively this week. Next time, it is Christmas. Hurrah, fa-la-la-la-la and all of that. Seems frankly unbelievable that I should schedule two episodes on Christmas Day for crying aloud. I mean, who on earth is going to be downloading casts on Christmas Day? Nonetheless, those casts will sit and wait patiently in the ether for the command of you, their masters. One of these episodes is, of course, another Shedcast, hurrah, about the great Earl of Kildare and a colourful story supposedly underpinning the origin of the phrase to chance your arm. Which means, essentially, that it's just happy Christmas from me, have a hoot, and I will be with you again on Christmas Day. <laughs>